Hi, I'm Deb Crow, and I want to welcome you to Season 3 of Imperfect, the Heart-Centered Leadership Podcast. This is a podcast where we connect, learn, and laugh together with authentic and courageous leaders from all over the globe. You will learn from leaders you haven't even met yet. You will gain new tools to add to your leadership toolkit. Leadership belongs to all of us. It's not measured by stature or title. So please pull up a chair and listen in. This is the Heart Centered Leadership Podcast. You are going to absolutely love this episode today. We are bringing two of my favorite things together Zen and leadership. And I want to tell you a little bit about Ginny Whitelaw from her first science job working in high energy physics in a lab, learning how to work with energy in Zen training to her doctoral research in biophysics. Ginny has beautifully brought together and intersected energy, mind, and body together. She was a senior leader at NASA, and she was in charge of integrating the space station program. She took several leadership courses, but felt dissatisfied that their head-only approach ignored the body when enduring change does occur. It became clear to her that integrating science and the physical energetic practices from the Dujo in leadership development was her work to do. So grab a coffee and pull up a chair because you are going to really love and enjoy and learn from a wonderful global leader today. So Ginny, this is such an honor for me. I'm a big proponent in belief that serendipitous moments happen for a reason. And and if we choose to act on them, magic can happen. And I I read your one of your many beautiful articles on Forbes and reached out to you and we had such a lovely conversation. And and now I get to share you with the world in a beautiful interview. So thank you for being on the show today and welcome. Mm, Thank you, Deb. What a lovely welcome and it's honored to be with you. So my first leadership question is, I want to take you back in time because I let our listeners know in your introduction, when you were a senior leader in NASA, so let us let me pull you back in time, and you were in charge of integrating the space station program, and you had taken several leadership courses, and you spent some time observing, analyzing, assessing, and thought, why is it only a head-only approach? I think this was a serendipitous time in your life. Take us back to the headspace, no pun intended. And did that plant the seed for you? Or what did you witness? Because I think a lot of our listeners are going to gain insight because there is a lot of head-only approach. So I'm going to let you unveil this as far and wide as you want to, but I would love for you to share your heart and mind and overall experience of that time. Oh, thank you. A generous question. What seeded that time actually came somewhat before because when I was in college and graduate school, I started training in martial arts and meditation. And initially, you know, my martial art venture was was very practical, common sense. Like there would, 
you know, I wanted self-defense because I had night classes and women in my campus were being attacked. So I started in martial arts, but then encountered a world-class Aikido teacher in graduate school, uh, Fumio Toyota, who said, if you want to reach the peak of your game, you have to start meditating. And he knew how to get to me because I was a very ambitious person. I had great dreams. And of course, I wanted to reach the peak of my game, whatever that meant. And so I started training in Zen. Then we come to the point that you highlighted, Deb, of when I've now, with all of my ambition and dreams, I've climbed up the ladder at NASA to a, a fairly senior leadership position. I was being groomed for senior executive service in the government. And I'm taking these leadership courses and it's all above the neck. And I, I know from having been in Zen training for quite a few years at that point that the way you train the body changes the mind. What you do with the body changes the thoughts you think and changes what you do with those thoughts, the very frame you use to sense the world. It changes even what kind of antenna you are in terms of what you're able to sense or pick up from the field and the people and the situations around you. So when I'm in these head-only courses, I'm thinking, this is really interesting, but leadership does not start with just ego-based thoughts. You know, it's, it's, it's much bigger than this. And in fact, the ability to sense a future and make it happen has everything to do with how we connect with the people and situations around us. You know, in, in the terminology that you use, it's very heart-centered. It's relational. So a seed was planted that maybe this was my work to do. I didn't think it was my work to do. I wanted to be an astronaut. You know? So that was what took me to NASA. But I, that astronaut dream wasn't going anywhere. And I had a feeling that maybe this mind-body integration and leadership was what was needed next. And this is back in the you know, middle, early 90s, when not a lot of people were talking about that. As you know, being in this field yourself, business and leaders are often resistant to the sense of going into the body because it's a very natural stage in human adult development to get to kind of this head-only rational stage where we're very intellectual. We figure things out, we analyze from the head, yet further stages of adult development require this deeper reintegration with the body. And that was new in leadership. That it's really been growing in the last 30 years, but it ushers in some levels of consciousness that are so, so needed to address the some of the messes that we're in. And I love that you took us back to the mid-90s because I remember speaking about this when I would be case managing and sitting in a large meeting with a multidisciplinary team, and we'd be speaking about said patient with a neurotrauma. And there was never room or allowance for that connection to be spoken about. And even though I knew it had a place, you know, it's the wrong languaging and the wrong strategy and approach. It wasn't the right time or place. And so I really feel that synergy in the model and your example and you were going to be an astronaut and you were thinking, okay, maybe I am to do this work. So it's interesting how the universe or however you want to coin that phrase, whatever that is for you, pulls us in a different direction sometimes to get us to look outside the box. So 
I, I love the intersection that we have together in this world in two different complete modalities. So my second question is super fun and it has permanent residency on the show. We've asked over 200 leaders this question. It usually brings some laughter and a pause. What imperfections does Ginny bring to her heart-centered leadership? Oh, it's they've been such training partners for me over the years. <laughs> I have to tell you about the imperfections. You know, in, in some ways they're perfect because they come out of you know, the exact conditions of my life. But where some of the things that have really gotten me in trouble is first caring a lot about what people think. That has been a a weight sometimes where uh, I find myself not being as direct or clear or even as honest as I need to be. And one of my strengths as a leader is I, I, I can really organize a lot of threads of activity and integrate them together. But one of the weaknesses of that or imperfections of that is sometimes I try to make things too neat and tidy, <laughs> you know, <laughs> rather than just let them be a mess or let them evolve in their own time frame. Like I impose a kind of control that that certainly happened in my earlier life more than maybe it happens now. But I'm seeing the real shortfalls of that. And then in that process, end up trying to do too much myself, too much through my own efforts rather than the collective efforts or what's possible more in relationship. So those would be some of the imperfections that have been my training partners over the years. Well, and I love the first one, caring what other people think. And I have a lot of friends and colleagues in the fitness industry. And we often joke and say the best diet you can be on is to lose the weight of other people's opinions. <laughs> it's one It's one we all struggle with, right? I love that. And I love the commonality of that question and the answers with the leaders because it further shows that we're really all so much alike. There really isn't that many differences. And it's nice when we can share our imperfections because we all have them. And it's interesting how many of them are are unique and, and relatable. Okay, my third question, I am so excited to, to hear your answer. You decided to found the Institute for Zen Leadership, which I love that name and I love that partnership of those words and language in 2012. And you realized how you could augment or take leaders further in a self-selected group. And you talk about this over the course of taking them through a weekend. So my question is, could you share that Sometimes we can take leaders through a weekend, but I think when we're doing the deep work, the Zen leadership, sometimes the weekend can be a discovery. And how do you help the leaders get out of that transactional mentality of of measurement to realize that maybe the weekend's a discovery and it's a to-be-continued because I think it's that head only like, okay, we're going to spend the weekend with Jitty and this is what we're going to get through and we're going to have all these great ideas and a strategy. Sometimes that doesn't happen. So I would really love for you to share maybe a high level overview of a weekend and sometimes you get to where you want to and sometimes you don't and just unpacking the why of that. Yeah, yeah. 
Great. So imagine a weekend. It's Thursday night, say, and you've started a Zen leader program. Uh, and we're, we're going to gather up in a circle to find out why you're here and what you want out of the weekend. So we're hearing these kind of things. And then we're taking it into the body. We're starting to feel into some basic things, how you breathe, how you sit, breathing and posture. We're introducing you to meditation. Why? Because that's where you're going to start to feel a deeper sense of connection or build up the kind of energy that you'll need for those things that you wanted to do. We start each of the days of the weekend with meditation and physical work, stretching, you know, yoga type stretching and, and work. What are people noticing in that? By the time they start their regular day, they're, they're in a different frame of body mind. So as we start a program at, at, you know, by the time we're at 830 and we're starting into the content around the kind of flips of Zen leadership, the radical reframes that really lead to leading fearlessly. By the time we start that, people are already warmed up in the sense of feeling their whole self, their whole self-experience. And how is that deeper than transactional? They're not just a chattering mind. They've already had an experience of where a change in the body even changes the rate at which thought develops. They've already had an experience of exercises where stuckness in the body is, is making itself apparent. So they're getting curious, like, why can't I make that sound? Why can't I move that way? How does this relate to my leadership presence or my ability to absorb trauma and difficulty and stress during my day? So they're making connections that people tell me in their words that by the end of the weekend, it feels like a homecoming, a coming home to something deep in themselves because they're also connecting with purpose, with what, what really matters, and then reframing how they approach their leadership from a sense of not um, just a myriad of problems and challenges, but the future they're trying to create. And what that means in a purposeful sense is it comes through themselves, how they themselves have to shift to embody that future. And by embody it, I mean become it. <laughs> I tell leaders, when you exactly match the you of a future goal, that goal realized, that outcome manifest, when you exactly match the you will you will be when that desired future is true, that desired future will be present because that's where you live. You live in the now. You live in the present. So we often think the job of leadership is to somehow change the world out there in order to bring about uh, what we want. And the reality is almost in the inversion of that. It's not that action in the world doesn't matter. It's that it is motivated and driven by how we change in here. It's the inner transformation in terms of, and by in and out, I don't even mean to separate it as a hard boundary because we are a constellation of relationships. And how we change and work with and reciprocate in those relationships changes everything we're capable of making in the world. So I say energy turns, leadership turns energy into things that matter. And the way we change and use our own body mind as an instrument is our tool for doing that. Oh my gosh, Jenny, I don't, I don't even know where to start to say how much I, I love that response. When people realize that their cognition and their emotion can be in unison as one, their metacognition is so foundational and on point. They understand, 
okay, this is why I'm going to lead and be heart-centered and be intrinsic and not be swayed by extrinsic motivation or not take the time and initiate with a systemic way of being and thinking. It is such a powerful place to be. I knew that question was going to just be amazing. I knew the answer was going to be amazing. And I, it gets us out of that head-only spot. We almost need to create a sign, Ginny, with head-only with a red circle and a line through it because <laughs> leadership is so much more. Now, my last question is, I know with your psychologist husband, Mark, you developed an assessment called Phoebe, if I'm saying that right, F-E-B-I. Share with us how Phoebe was thought of, developed, and, and unfolded, and what does Phoebe measure, and how has it impacted the work you've done with leaders around the globe? Well, that takes us back to your first question about sitting in those leadership programs at NASA. And one of the things that a leadership program often has is an assessment of your personality, right? And I was taking these assessments and going like, these are head only, these are head only. <laughs> so and to, put it, to put that cross through it, as you said, I knew the body changes the head. So where is this integration? So it was something I started really chewing on and gnawing on. And, and my first book, which came out in the late 90s called Body Learning, was about how the mind learns from the body. And I had in there some simplistic method of how you could choose certain practices to train your mind in different ways that, it, that comes out of martial art and meditation training because it's very intentionally used in the martial arts. Well, the best thing that came out of that book, <laughs> because I would say on the whole, it was what we'd call a starter effort, was that I met uh, Betsy Wetzig, who somebody said, you need to meet this person because she knows about these energy patterns in the nervous system that integrate mind and body. And it could be a good framework for helping people select practices that help them be better leaders. So in meeting Betsy, I learned about these patterns and it wasn't something she made up. It's actually work that came out of the 1930s and Josephine Rathbone at, at Columbia University working with understanding four different ways of movement and that the opposing muscle groups of our body that control every joint have an order in which they can be activated and that there's four different ways those two things can be activated resulting in four fundamental patterns. Well, they were treated as patterns of movement for a while but it was recognized by Betsy that these were patterns of personality or temperament, that the way she was a dancer, Betsy was, a choreographer, and she had a dance troupe where she could really watch how people moved and then how they acted and how they moved and how they acted. And she started connecting the dots that people who had were really good at like these aggressive moves of Martha Graham dance were actually kind of aggressive to other people too. And they, she started seeing how these related. Well, when she taught me these patterns, I said, you know, where's the book on this? And, you know, how do you measure this? And she, she, she and I ended up writing a book together, Move to Greatness. And then I wanted an assessment I could bring into leadership programs. And that's where I started working with, with Mark, uh, psychologists and other psychometricians to develop and validate an instrument that you could take just like other instruments, you know, so if you will, a pencil and paper online test but by answering questions, but this one got at which of these patterns do you favor? Which is kind of your go-to default? Because we have a go-to default and we are differentiated with respect to how strong that default is 
relative to the other three patterns, just like we are different with respect to how handed we are, right-handed or left-handed or kind of ambidextrous, same with these energy patterns. So the feeding measures your preference for the patterns, but with a real power of it from my point of view is how not to get stuck there, how you can also access any pattern as life calls for it because you have all four and we give people the experience of how they can use all four. And then there are development suggestions in the Phoebe of how you can access any pattern you'd like more of that is maybe weak for you, that is un- like an underused team member that you need to pull out. And for the last um, 15 years or so, we've been helping coaches know how to use this instrument and certifying people and how to use it in their work and also integrating it into leadership programs all over the world. You know, and it has its place and it's lovely to have this conversation because so many large companies have a head-only assessment and they migrated to one. And it's not a one-size-fits-all. It's tremendously heavy-only dominant across the globe. And my wish is in our lifetime that we can kind of unbuckle this a little bit and and open the bandwidth because people are so different. And it's like you said, we have our default patterns and and how we move physically changes our cognitive emotional state. And we're all different in that regard. And there's many great assessments out there, but so many of them are head only. And I don't think that they justify or really give a true picture of, a, of that person, especially in onboarding and talent management. Mm-hmm. And that that's my wish for the world is I wish there would be a, a larger menu which would tailor to the person being considered to be hired or under a review and even at the executive C-suite level because personality is is really one one hundredth of the pie when we're looking at someone as a whole being. That's beautiful. And when when we look at the body and mind together, part of the beauty of that is that if you do need access to a different pattern, you can physically practice it. Whereas in in different kinds of executive assessments, you know, an executive might be told, oh, you need to be more strategic. Okay, well, what do you do with that? Well, if you know your energy patterns, you know there's a pattern for that and how to access it. But if you're taking a head-only assessment, it's just words. It's just a piece of word. Now, go be more strategic. To make things practicable is really the beauty of putting it deeper in the body because it's the body that actually has to enact the pattern. It is, and it makes me think of a patient that I had when I was case managing It was a young boy in middle school, uh, suffered a traumatic brain injury from a car accident. And his working memory, and, and we know memory is complex as it is, but think of an injured brain and not to get too medical, but a lot of my patients had what they refer to the medical term diffuse axonal injury. So multiple shearing and tearing amongst the five lobes and really own a good analysis from neuropsychology assessment, behavior observation, et cetera. And I had such a connection energy-wise with this young boy that I decided to focus 
on his procedural memory because we had such an energy connection and I could manage his emotion. And it was so enjoyable for him that over time, his working memory was better and he still had the ability of being young with a brain that was developing. And I remember the neuropsychologist saying to me, what a different approach and a great approach that no one's ever done. Mm -hmm. And it's again, that mind-body connection is truly not even thinking outside the box, like throwing the box away and just honoring that heart-centered definition, the connection with that person. And that young boy went on and went to university and, and, and I just... It's it's one of those stories that are so, it's so engraved in my heart because maybe I didn't have the terms, but I just instinctively and intuitively knew with the connection, this was going to work. And I think sometimes people forget that our working memory needs just as much repetition as other elements of short and long-term memory. And it just further augments that mind-body connection, even in an injury or an illness. Oh my God, we could be talking about this all day. <laughs> all right, I'm going to switch to my Fab Four. These are just four fun questions. The context is, we don't want you to think, we just want to know what's sitting on the top of that brilliant mind of yours. So my first question is, if I talk to your husband, Mark, or any of your family or friends, and I ask them to describe Ginny in one word, what would it be? Disciplined. I can, I can see that. <laughs> Discipline with Zen. <laughs> Second question, share with us a book that you've read anytime in your life that was really impactful and life-changing? What was the book and who was the author? And, and what did you really take away? Surin Gama Sutra, I have to say. And I know this is kind of, it might sound like an esoteric answer, but I'll make it more general for people. In my own Zen training and teaching, we learn about the, I'll call it the greatest hit sutras, you know, the sutras that have been passed down for many centuries. And I read them all. And they all kind of, you know, didn't stick with me initially because I wasn't very mature when I first read them. And then when you go back over them again and again, they start to sink in more deeply. But this Surangama Sutra was the gateway for me. I read that over and over and over. And it really inspired the book, The Zen Leader, because it, by the time I, it just soaked into my bones and I could see we have everything backwards so this book changed my life for sure. And it is, uh, it has all the, you know, inaccessible flower language of something written, you know, 1500 years ago or whatever. But when you read through all of that, it's like you're reading the answers in the back of your, your teacher's arithmetic book. You, you just see so clearly how the human being gets things backwards and how to flip it around to see life the right way. Oh, I love that. That's a beautiful description of perception, isn't it? <laughs> Love it. Okay, third question. I am granting you a wish, and the wish is you get to have dinner with a living leader who you would love to meet. Who are you having dinner with, and what is the dinner conversation? Mm. 
You know, there's a living leader that I'm working with right now. I would love to meet in live. It's Alarian um, Matuliev, who is a, a holder in the Wisdom Weavers, an indigenous elder whose wisdom has really touched my heart because he speaks to a tradition that's like, like 10,000 years old. And I'm working with him in, in a, in a summit that we're planning for, for April. I would love to have dinner with him and just feel into connectedness that was so much a part of his life and how we can bring that into our more Western dissociated culture. I love that. And you've just put it out. You've just put that energy out there and that'll be an exciting summit. So you're, you're going to have to keep us in the loop on that. So before I, I ask you my, my fourth question, which is a sentence I have all of my guests finish, I just want to say you inspire me greatly You've given me another avenue of a different habit of thinking for the own, for the work that I've been doing and to see the intersection and that it does have a definite place in business, in leadership. And I just look forward to keeping in touch with you. And I'm so happy that I found your article on Forbes. Serendipitous. Thank you, Tim. It's lovely to talk with you as well. So what's the sentence? The sentence that I want you to finish is heart-centered leadership is feeling into the reciprocal relationships that make you and all things possible. Thanks for joining me today on Imperfect, the heart-centered leadership podcast. I hope that you've enjoyed the show today and learned some new tools for your leadership from our amazing heart-centered guest. And if you like the show, we would welcome a rating and review on whatever platform you listen to. And we would love to have any comments or feedback at any time. And if you want some more heart-centered goodness, head over to our daily blog, masteringtheheart.com.